Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Dave Stapleton, the founder and CEO of Bua Fit. Dave, you're very welcome to the show. Green, thank you. Uh, cheers for having me. Excited to be here. <clears throat> Delighted to have you. We focus on three areas in this podcast, early influences, challenges, and pivotal moments. So no different with you. Let's start with where you grew up, Selbridge and Kildare. Any favorite standout memories of your childhood? Yeah, um, it was a great place to grow up um, in the sense of there was... Um, a lot of kids uh, to play sports with. Um, it was kind of like a small village back then when I moved from Knock, I was like uh, five years of age. So uh, standout memories, um, outdoors playing sports. Um, or there was a group of us actually that we were always really keen on, on, on making money. So we used to like come up with like different projects to do, like, from painting to knocking on the neighbor's door, asking if they needed their gutters clean to all sorts. So I suppose maybe the standout memories um, back in Selbridge. <clears throat> One of the questions I'd like to ask before we get into business is around impact and influence. So usually people can point to one or a number of people, close family members, relatives, teachers, friends that they believe had an impact or influence on the person they've turned out to be today. Can anyone spring to mind for you? Yeah, there'd be a couple of people, but just to kind of make a decision on the spot, I'd say a blend between my mum and my dad. Um, it sounds a bit cliche, but um, I get all my discipline from my mum um, and I get my kind of um, business bills from my dad. They're both very hardworking and they both were always hugely into sport and they encouraged me from a very young age to get involved in sport, which was a huge part of my life for a very, very long time. Um, and I think uh, my father had a very successful family business. So when I wasn't in school or outdoors playing sports, I was in there working with him from learning the business from the ground up uh, from like a really young age. Um, I think that gave me the spark um, that I always knew that I wanted to set up uh, my own business, not just my own business, multiple businesses. So my mum and my dad, definitely. What What are your parents' names? Yeah, so my mum's name is Attracta. <laughs> Call her back for sure. It's actually a funny one. It's Her first name's Catherine, but she goes by Attracta. Um, odd, but a uh, cool name as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, my, very dad, <laughs> my dad's name's Brian. <laughs> well, shout out to both your parents. Uh, and, and the impact they've had on, on who you've been. Uh, that may have influenced you to study uh, business at Griffith College. Uh, I don't know, but that's probably my next question. Where did the interest in that come from? Because I know through research, you're a bit of a hustler from a young age. <laughs> uh, yeah, that came from, I think, I went to school in Castlemont College, which is a great school. Um, mm. And I was just so focused on on, on, on on sports and kind of like passing my leaving cert. I wasn't hugely academic. 
But then when I came out of um, Castlenock, I was kind of kind of disappointed with my leaving cert results. And um, my father, this is where my 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 mum and my dad had a big impact and really felt that education was important. So again, kind of leading in from the last question, they uh, were um, really encouraged this. Um, I knew that what I liked about Griffith was that I knew it was like a small uh, a smaller environment. Um, I actually went into UCD first for a year to do sports management and didn't really enjoy the environment. I went to Griffith then um, and loved it there. Um, it was great and it was actually very successful from an educational standpoint from, from my standards um, where I actually never failed an exam and I passed and um, I got some good results and stuff. So. Nice. Yeah, it was great, great experience. And then I moved on to do a master's in, in marketing um, in UCD, which what attracted that was, uh, it was a practical master's and uh, the marketing development program. And um, that was super cool experience. You got to work with really cool brands as well as at the academic side as well. So even though you may have flopped in your eyes and you're leaving, sir, you, you've now got a master's and not many people have a master's. So kudos to you. Yeah, cheers. You're a resident at the Google for Setups London campus. So a couple of questions on that. What's that like? You've been part of it for two and a half years. Uh, has it enabled you to hone certain skill sets, perhaps build a network? Um, what have you got from being part of that or got to tap into? Yeah, like amazing reading grounds to be with like-minded people. Um, an incredible brand to have some level of support from. And um, what I learned from, from actually two attempts to get in the first time we failed. So there's an element of perseverance there. And um, I mean, like when you're building such an early stage business and brand, you need every bit of help um, and support in order to, um, you know, speaking with investors, so there was some credibility there. Um, and it was just when you go into the environment there, you've got incredibly successful founders um, that will be going about their second or third mission. Um, so you, there was a great network, networking opportunity and then a great headspace working because productivity within and the co-working space uh, was amazing to be around. Just people that were working incredibly hard, really smart people that you could network with. And then a great brand that provided you with a service around learning and education. So really cool place. You mentioned the word perseverance, and I wasn't going to bring this up until later on, but um, that's something that's come up a number of times in your life. You, um, you went for... I was going to bring it up around mindset, dealing with setbacks and rejection. You went for raising money privately, 82 no's until you got your first yes. But you've also mentioned that you didn't get into Google startups on your first try. So um, how, how do you train your, your mindset to continue to push through? And uh, I'm assuming market feedback has helped with that and potential like coaches and just being able to talk to people who've been through it before but how do you push through that because some people will get two no's and be like this is a shit idea i'm out of here yes yeah, this was a great question i think my skill set uh, the dna of 
of, of me as a person and a business person in sales. Um, I've been selling literally since I'm 10, 11 years of age in the sense of in different formats, different environments. Um, I was incredibly independent um, and always was proactive around getting the job and earning money. Um, so where that element of perseverance comes from, very young age, as well as working in trading floors in London um, for several years, which I was never happy in. Uh, it was actually, there was, a, there was a couple of years where I was actually pretty miserable and exercising in a gym was pretty much the only things that got a day. But there was a lot of rejection. It was an incredibly competitive environment. Um, and that develops a huge element of resiliency within your productivity. Oh, um, that has really stood to me um, around building Vua. Uh, we're going through our second funding round right now. Uh, there's been a lot more nodes and projections as well. And you just kind of pick yourself back up. You do. I, I have had really dark days. Don't get me wrong with nose. <laughs> it's not all like, um, like it's not all just easy is what I'm trying to say. You do have to pick mm -hmm. yourself back up um, and kind of looking after yourself. Um, is a huge element as well. Eating well, uh, training, exercising, um, getting to bed early, getting up early, um, all of the smaller details, compounds. Um, so it would be a number of things. I've been involved in sales for half a decade, maybe a little more. And, and I remember someone once before I get into it saying, the only reason anyone ever gets into sales is the hope that they're good at that and they can make good money from it. But there's more to it than that. And one of the things I picked up on you saying is that it, it, it trains you to become resilient because let's face it, in sales, you get a shit ton of rejection yeah. and, and knows. And that's kind of that and your earlier years kind of helped you deal with the, the, the setbacks. There's, there's this thing going around on LinkedIn at the moment where I just keep seeing companies celebrating their Series D, Series E round. So I'm, I'm labeling it official unicorn season at the moment. Yeah. But, um, you're, I, I don't see as many bootstrap companies uh, get into the limelight or the media talking about them. So for the first three years, and I'm reading here from a document, if you see my eyes wander, for the first three years, you worked nine to five in a company uh, while getting built off the ground. So what, what was that like? If someone came to a young Dave and said, here's my idea. Uh, you know, I've, I've tested it with the market. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do it on the side while working. Similar sort of to you, would you have any advice for them? And by the way, they're bootstraps. That's the whole point of it. They're not going to look for investment at that stage. Looking back, what advice would you have for someone who was in your stage, bootstrapped, doing it on the side? Uh, because all the no noise and news is around Series D, Outreach, Series E, Gong, and all these companies, which are great companies, but there's just not enough bootstrap companies getting the media as well. Yeah, good question. Um, it'd be a couple of things here, but just to summarize it, I think a deep love for the problem that you're trying to solve. And mm. um, because that's what gets you through the most difficult times. I mean, coming in from work after a really tough day, uh, you might have hit your day's targets or whatever, or you've had a bad week, and actually picking yourself up to go and do your third shift of the day. I used to get up before work, then go into work, and then come home and work, the gym in, 
So, I mean, to get the business to a stage where I had a product market with a team and dribbles of revenue in, which we started to catch some attention from early stage investors, it was blood, sweat and tears to get it to that stage, uh, to bootstrap. Um, and you got to just all in, in the sense of um, from a financial perspective, uh, from a productivity standpoint, um, and just being incredibly disciplined to work when you don't work. Um, and it all comes back to being obsessed with that problem. And how I found the problem was when I was unhappy in finance, as I said to you earlier, exercising in a gym was the only thing that kept me going. And that's where I spotted the problem. Trainers are self-employed. They paid extortionate rents. They don't have a direct connection with consumers at scale. They get capped with group classes. And one of my friends, a person I know failed as a trainer six months into their journey. And I was just like, wow, this is a big problem in a billion pound industry. And then I loved outdoor fitness, playing semi-professional rugby and always outdoors playing sports as a kid. And I couldn't find outdoor classes. So I knew it was a consumer need. I knew by connecting outdoors would help because inventory in the indoor market caused the problem. The brands are passing the risk down to the suppliers, the trainers. So yeah, just to pull it back, every hard moment was, was, was I burst through the hard moment or burst through the wall just because of the deep love of, 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 of the consumer side and being obsessed with solving the problem with the trainer. Whereas if I was to go and set up an FX brokerage house, I guarantee I would have failed relatively soon into my journey. Got to have a fire underneath your ass, don't you? Yeah, exactly. exactly. If you could add, I'm talking A-levels for English listeners, leaving Silk Friars and uh, high school, SATs for Americans. If you could add any, if you were the final decision maker, add any subject to the curriculum for secondary school, what would it be and why? I would have to probably say a class in sales. I was gonna say maybe like something along the entrepreneurial route, but if there's a difference between sales and being entrepreneurial, everyone has to have an element of sales skills doing, even if they're not in that role, always have an element of selling yourself. Um, so I would say that like, and it would kind of like and blend into like mindset um, as so like, how to present yourself, how to sell yourself, um, and how to look after uh, your kind of mental well-being. Um, because I don't know what I'm learning is everything mindset. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that answer. In your role as co-founder, CEO, is there a commonly held belief about that role? Or maybe you want to answer about your industry that you disagree with? And if so, what is it? For me, as the leader behind the brand, is, is my job is to be fully accountable for everything that goes on in business. And being a marketplace model, there's stuff that I have a certain element of no control to. Um, and I love that. And that's what I didn't have in my career. And I think the element of accountability is if, if the professional that we've recruited in and makes a couple of mistakes um, and upsets consumers in a park and clap in common. I hold myself fully accountable for that problem because I will say to myself as, and the brand, what can we do better 
help that trainer so that experience doesn't happen again for the consumer. Um, so that was, I think, the first question. What was the second question there you mentioned? It was, is there a commonly held belief about your role or industry that you disagree with? Which, which you yeah, yeah. And then the other one is, is like, like, the, like, my role is not to tell people what to do. <laughs> my role is to get behind people. And that would definitely be a common disbelief. I think, like, leadership as a skill set, I think, has definitely changed from decade to decade. If you're to go back to the 70s and 80s and do case studies compared to now, um, I roll up my sleeves. Like, I do everything possible. Um, well, problems like i'll give you one example like when we when we came out of lockdown right my business was closed collectively for seven months after raising uh money uh for bootstrap two years or sorry two and a half years just under three um and we had clients booking in within a two mile radius in London Fields and Hackney. Um, and there were one bookings. So what I was doing was I was booking myself into the classes to give the consumers that booked in and we got no other sales a better experience. So I was going to one class and I'd like 15 minutes to get to the other class. I was literally sprinting, getting a bus, get to the second class on time so that customer has a good experience where we didn't have to fail on the class where it's like a, a one, one person experience for a group group experience even though it's only two people like that level of hustle to make your business work and <clears throat> that's what i'm prepared to do whereas if i had a we said automate an email say sorry you're the only one booked to both those customers the likelihood of them never coming back again will be quite high that's and, phenomenal yeah, so that's the type of stuff that I would be doing behind the scenes. <clears throat> well, well, you've got a marketplace business and, and so you've got customers and you've got trainers on the website app. Um, I'd like to just focus on the trainer side of things, getting them on board. What's the strategy? Are you at a point now where you're growing organically kind of what by a word of mouth and and if so how did you get trainers to sign up at, at the beginning yeah so our whole last phase has been um it's early pre-seed so you're just raising a small amount of money in the grand scheme of things with mm. a lot of money two hundred thousand is what we raised so really important that you don't we're not into vanity data because the only we just shoot ourselves in the foot because we need to make sure that the market really needs Bua as a platform in this phase. We have we have proof of lots of proof of that, over proof of that. So 70% of our growth has been organic because you want people to see if they refer other trainers or if you want people to see if you're there speaking about you instead of like paying for customers. So we've got like over a hundred vetted businesses. Not any trainer can just sign up to the platform. It's pretty much like an interview. And considering our stage um, and we would pick up a lot from yeah, word of mouth, other trainers referring others. We pick up a lot from social media um, and we've done a very small uh, element of paid marketing to test out the unity economics, see whether um, we can scale 
outside of it in the next funding round, which we can Craig, like complete kudos to you. There was a stat that I saw, and I know it's we're entering Q3. Yeah. Um, but in Q1 of, of, of 2021, you had 1,950 bookings, which is phenomenal. So congrats on that. The other thing is, every now and again, uh, one of my friends will come over, I'll hang out with him, and he'll be interested in who I have coming on the podcast in the not-too-distant future. And I kind of gave him a list of names going, you know, this person's coming on, this person's coming on. Your name came up because he was over last night. And he looked at it and he says, yeah, that's only a seasonal business. And I asked him and I said, there's no way that's a seasonal only business. So I did a little digging and, and immediately in my head, I had a second business for you, which was setting up a clothing brand called Boo, where you sell based on the season. But you told this story about how you... Uh, in November, there was an outdoor class and there were 70 people at it. How did that make you feel when you would turn up to that class and you were like, yeah, I'm onto something here? The best feeling ever. I can't describe it. I, honestly, because my whole, my whole, re, so when I was in Smurfit, I did a master's in marketing research. What we did not do is cut any corners into building Bua and that's why um, we probably would be growing um lower than some other brands because by the research element is is when you get the product market fit you fail way faster and um, but coming back to the question and um, i knew that i was seriously onto something and it gave me this like element of like drive motivation like passion and um, and then when the pandemic shut our outdoor model it was a really really dark moment um and this, this, this silver lining in that is, is is that now your buddy can't say that. We've built Boo Alive, um, which is a technology um, from a feature standpoint that nobody else has but us. So our IP and our tech stack now is incredibly valuable. Um, and yeah, it solves problems for both sides. So yeah, it was a great feeling. But I think what I learned was um, your mission, you, you need to have, in your mission, you need to have an element of flexibility. Um, like my mission originally was to get millions of consumers outdoors exercising. Now my mission is to empower fitness professionals to succeed and inspire consumers to live a happier and healthier life. So we had to tweak our mission and move super fast to stay in business. Um, mm. If we didn't make that decision, yeah, like we wouldn't be here right now, you know? Uh, it'd be very unlikely scenario. <clears throat> Are you copying a model like Facebook where you start with a community like they did at Harvard and grow from there? Or are you just going to stay within London and that's a big enough market for you to, to grow? No, we'll be a global brand. Um, launching in the fitness capitals, London's one of them, LA, Sydney. We've strategically looked for partners around the world in our first funding round and our second funding round. So we can crystallize our launches when we move. Our tech stack is so um, unique on the supply side and we're better servicing an underserviced market behind the scenes. Like we connect our supply to our copywriters we design their logos. We are so obsessed with 
helping them be successful that they can't find that service anywhere else. So what that has done is organically moved us into different geographies when we're not supposed to. So right now our focus and laser focus is London, but we have a trainer um, that's just come on board in Yorkshire. We've got a trainer in Brighton. We've got a trainer in Cambridge. We've done uh, transactions in different countries like Spain and France, and we've got suppliers there as well. So it's great data for us, but we still need to stay super focused on making the economics work between supply and demand in London. Mm. Um, so we don't shoot ourselves in the foot in any way. So but it's a different pitch. We just manage expectations and just give them the technology and don't kind of um, sell ourselves on the marketing side of things. Two more questions for you. One is, have you got a favorite sport? And if so, what is it? Yeah, it's got to be rugby. Uh, yeah, I just love it. Still love it. Miss it every single day. Um, played with two amazing teams. Um, finished my career with Lansdowne. Um, really missed it. Um, both secondary. Uh, recently, I've gotten hugely into swimming. Um, love that. Um, so, yeah, sorry, you couldn't pick one. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, final question is, if, you, if, we, if, you're, if we're imagining we're talking in the year 2030 and you're looking back on the last decade, answer this personally, professionally, in combination of both you choose, what would you hope or like to be looking back on if we're imagining now is 2030 and you're looking back? That I will have floated a business on an exchange and I'll be ringing a bell. Have, have, have you imagined what that feels like during that? I imagine it every day. <laughs> every single day, I imagine it. Um, so, yeah, nine years to do it, no problem. Solid. Dave, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, man. 30 minutes has flown by. Um, it, it's easy to see why you've continued to succeed with going to those classes and having short spaces to do just to keep the, the business up and running and adapting when the uh, the virus hit and yeah and you're, you're definitely not a seasonal business if you ever do come out with a clothing line for the different seasons let me know I'm more than happy to buy some clothing but uh, for, for today thanks for being my guest man it's been an absolute pleasure no no problem I'll send you a bullfit hoodie in the post and we've got some great feedback on our apparel and yeah we've got big plans around that uh, thanks a million for having me Irene it was a pleasure speaking to you thanks for asking me on and uh, yeah, I'll get something out to you in the post and I uh, hope you have a lovely weekend.